0: Now, this is often an overlooked portion of Scripture. It's relegated to the Old Testament, something the Jews did, Judaizers did. And we miss the powerful lessons God has for us in the sanctuary. And so we're going through the sanctuary, and we're part number two. um, And we're going to dig into Hebrews, and we're going to look at the better way. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at the Passover and what lessons it has for us. The week after that the sanctuary festivals week after that we have our Christmas musical program and then uh, December 29th we're going to be studying the day of atonement one of the festivals and then we'll be looking at the feast of tabernacles as we begin the new year that's really ending the Hebrew year but it'll be beginning our year as we look at the feast of tabernacles and what God has for us now one little plug that I'd like to do Ah, Brandon are we still okay There's this button that ends it right beside the next one, and I seem to always find that one. Okay. Um, Next week, during welcome announcement time, one of our church members is going as a missionary to an undisclosed country. This will be her last Sabbath with us, and it will be off the air, so it won't be broadcast, but if you'd like to hear her, give her final um, discussion with us, share with us, then I just want to invite you to be here during welcome announcement time. My daughter's giving me a signal Is there something here? No. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So um, there are different ideas about how God forgives us. The atonement theories. There's some major ones, and I want to look at those with you. Um, There's the moral influence theory. This was kind of started by Augustine a long time ago. And the idea is that God wants to influence our morals to help shape our understanding of who he is because our understanding of who God is has been warped and twisted by the lies Satan has given to us. And so God wants to reveal to us his true character so that our mind can really rightly understand who God is and that will, shape, that will change our position from one of rebellion towards God to one being in harmony with God. Moral influence theory. Now, uh, I was told by a wise professor of mine one time named Alan Parker, <coughs> uh, that, that it's, error is often disguised under the cloth of truth. It's not often what is said, but it's what's left out. What is left out with the moral influence theory? Well, it was corrected by this theory, the ransom theory. Now, with the ransom theory, it recognized that we had been taken captive by sin and that our ransom price needed to be paid for us to redeem us. Do you see some truth here? For sure. This was left out of the moral influence theory, the price that, 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 uh, that blood paid in our behalf, the ransom theory. Now, who's the ransom paid to? So scholars thought about this for a while, and they thought, aha, we, we were taken captive by Satan, so the ransom is then paid to Satan, the ransom theory. Now, not all ransom theorists believe mostly, but that's by and large most of them do. Out of this and as a reaction to that, because some people thought, what? Does, does God really owe Satan anything? I mean, this doesn't really make sense. And so, um, does God owe Satan anything? So they said, uh, no, no. Um, Christ really won the victory over evil. So they came up with a Christus victor. He's the victor over evil to redeem us. Is there some truth there? Yeah, so each, each one of these, we see some truth, but there's parts that are left out. There was another theory that came up called the satisfaction theory. And this is where justice needed to be satisfied. And... So when Christ died, his blood was shed to satisfy justice. Hmm. And then there's penal substitution theory. This is where punishment is placed upon Christ and he's substituted in our place. Penal substitution theory. Each one of these theories has a beautiful element about the atonement, but sometimes it misses out other elements. Boy, I have some news for you. In the book of Hebrews... In entirely the Old Testament, God put together an atonement that our human minds have a hard time understanding. And so he laid it out in what's called the sanctuary service so that we can understand how he's atoning us. We can come up with our different theories, but why don't we just use his? Let's just use his theory on atonement. And as we look at this kind of role play, this this, uh, panorama of the atonement, instead of putting it to words, God puts it to action, and we can get a glimpse into this better way that he has for us. So, in the book of Hebrews, which is where we're going, if you want to open your Bibles and me to Hebrews chapter 1, in the book of Hebrews, Paul explores some major themes. Some major themes. One of them, he explores the idea of angels. Now, I don't know if you believe in angels or not, but the scripture is pretty clear that there are angels And in the sanctuary system, okay, let me just explain it to you real quick for those of you who don't know. The sanctuary service was this whole system that was set up that was in the camp of the Israelites, and it had this curtain all the way around, and that curtain went around what was called the courtyard. There was one way in, Keith did an excellent job last week explaining this, there was one way in, there was one door into this place of atonement. And you went through this door, and as you come inside, whoa, there's this altar of sacrifice in front of you If you sidestep and go around that right in fr- on the other side of that is a big bowl of water called a laver where they would wash themselves and then you go around that and you come to this, this building that has two rooms the first one is bigger than the second one and there's one way in this room and when you go in this room you see some furniture that's in here you look to the left there's a candlestick with seven seven candlesticks you look to the right there's a table with two two stacks stacks of bread bread, six in each each. you look ahead and there's a small little altar of incense incense with four horns and the smoke is coming off of that that. and and then you can't can't go any any further further, because there's this big veil in front of you that's that's blue purple and red but if you were to, if poke you to poke your head, your head inside and look, inside and look around, around, there's this, this ark, a box, box, called the Ark of the, of the Covenant. And on top, and on top there's, there's a mercy seat sea and two, angels, and two, two angels, angels on each side. Two angels. At the inner sanctum there's of this, there's, there's angels, angels that are right there. 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 And if you took and the lid off the box, box and you looked inside, inside there was the Ten, the Ten Commandments, Commandments that was in there. In there. And that's this room. Beside it was Aaron's rod that was budding and the the law of the covenant so that's it so we'll come back out and we come to this other room and if you look up you see the ceiling and on the ceiling is this curtain that has blue purple and red and embroidered all over the curtain are angels angels all over you look around there's angels everywhere you look on the walls above the gold there's angels the curtain between the two you look at that it has embroidered angels all over the curtain Angels are very much a part of the sanctuary uh, tabernacle. They're on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So Moses picks up this theme in Hebrews of angels. Also, it was really Moses that brought them this sanctuary service. He had talked with God and he brought it down, and he explained it all about. So so he talks in Hebrews, he talks about Moses in there. And he also, this whole system is meant to save men. And so Men have entered into a covenant with God. We will do this system by faith, and you will forgive us of our sins. A covenant. There are priests that are a part of this. They're busy sacrificing animals, putting them here, taking the blood there, uh, putting the bread out, lighting the candles, putting oil. Priests are busy. And so the Levitical priesthood is very active in this service, and he talks about that. And one of the core elements of this whole thing is sacrifice. Animals, Animals are, sacrificed. are sacrificed. So Paul, Paul oh, it's hot it's in here. Hot in here. Wow. wow. I don't know why I feel that way. but um, um, So Paul talks about Paul this. Now, now. Uh, I'm going to um, give a quick, give over a quick over to, overview of you over where we're, we're headed. headed. Okay, so, okay, he, talks so he talks about the son is better, is than, is the better, the better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He has a better sacrifice. He has a better covenant, and he has a better ministry. Okay, so now we're going to go together through Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, and verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, just real quick, I'm reading from ESV, the English Standard Version. So, uh, it's a very literal translation. Um, I'll explain later about translations. I thought maybe I'd explain. Anyway, ESV is what I'm reading from. So, if you're reading from something a little different, it might sound a little different to you. So God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Now this is really the theme that Paul builds on through the book of Hebrews, the son. Now he doesn't state who the son is right here, but he will, the son. By whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, the son. Wow. Wow. God created all things through the Son. This Son must be highly important. Now what could be more important in a Hebrew's mind than an angel in the presence of God? And so he goes on to talk about this. After the Son, verse uh, 3, after the Son making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the son is superior to angels. This is a key point. This is a real foundational point. And then he quotes the scriptures. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Verse six, and again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. What happened there in Bethlehem? Weren't there there myriads of angels that came? And worshipped him. So this is referring to the Son that came that angels worshiped. But Paul goes on to further establish his point in verse 8. But of the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever. So he establishes that there is a Son, that He's better than the angels, and that He is God. Wow. Right from the book of Hebrews, Paul takes his first punch. Let's them know. Your throne, O God. This son is God, and he's better than the angels. And then we're going to go to verse, I mean, chapter 2. And verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all one. Now this is a really important point to him. That is why he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. The one who makes them sanctified is one with those that he calls brothers. Now he's going to build on this point, brothers. He quotes the scripture and he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This This is a reference from Jesus. He's referring to his brothers. And so Paul's point about the fact that Jesus became brothers with those he came to save is seen in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So he's saying that Jesus, or the Son, excuse me, the Son is better than the angels, he is God, but he became one with those he came to save, the incarnation. Amen. In verse 17, therefore he had to be made like to his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, he just makes this assertion. He just states it. Jesus is a high priest. It's the first time he uses it in the book of Hebrews, right here. Jesus is a high priest, better than the angels, equal with God like his brethren, but he's also a high priest and he needed to be like those he came to save because he could identify with them. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help. Do you ever need help? I don't know, I need help. There's times when I lose it and I need some help. My wife is like, Chris, you need some help. Go talk to Dr. Parker, he'll help you. Um, As good as Dr. Parker is at counseling, there's one even better than him. One who was made like his brothers, who's called a high priest. Now, a priest's job is to serve, and that's why Jesus was there. He became like those he came to save to help them when they're tempted. Then he makes a transition as we go from to chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share on a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the, most translations say, apostle. Huh? Huh? Have you ever thought of Jesus as an apostle? Well, that word apostle in Greek can be translated a number of different ways, but it really should be understood here. In my humble opinion, messenger. It's translated messenger in other places. And so it should be understood Jesus wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He was a messenger from God. Jesus, the messenger and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him. Now, It's interesting in the book of Hebrews, Paul will mention something and plant a seed. And then he'll walk away, and then he'll come back to it again and grow it really big. So he just mentions this. I want you to hear the word that that God appointed him. We'll come back to that point. So just as Moses was faithful in all his house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels, he's made like his brothers indeed he's God and he's better than Moses now this is really huge to a Hebrew like who could be better than Moses like, like Paul is lifting Jesus up high in the Hebrew's mind better than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself verse 5 now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant Moses was a what everyone servant a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was simply a servant, but Jesus was the son. And as the son, he was better than the angels. He was God who became man, and he's faithful. Do you think of Jesus as faithful? When you need help, is Jesus really faithful? I mean, you say amen, I hear you, I hear you, but um, do you really believe he's faithful? faithful. Sometimes discouragement just comes over. over. And in that moment, do you feel like he's he's faithful? faithful. When you're carrying a heavy weight on on your your back, back, is he faithful? Now, he pauses here as... Paul often do, and he goes on a side trail talking about the rest that God has. I'm gonna bypass that, and we're gonna keep going along with what he has brought up, okay? We're gonna bypass that, and we're gonna keep going past the chapter three to the end of chapter four. Hebrews four and verse 14. We are blasting through the book of Hebrews. Just put on your seatbelt, okay? Hebrews 4, 14. He says, since then. Since what? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Since then. And verse 16, let us then. Since then, we have a great high priest. Let us then. Let us then what? Let us then. With confidence, that's my translation, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace, here's these words, to help in time of need. According to Paul in the book of Hebrews, We have a high priest in heaven. heaven. And And since we have a high priest in heaven, then let us draw near to that high priest in heaven with confidence confidence, because we can have help in time of need, praise God. God. Since then, let us draw near. near. Is he near when you have a burden burden? on your back? back. We're gonna shift to chapter five, verse one. For every high priest chosen... from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So, in Moses' day, God said, we need a high priest. We'll choose from the tribe of Levi. We're going to choose Aaron. Aaron, you and your children forever will be a priest, a high priest for me. God appointed them. They didn't discern themselves, I'm going to be a priest. God appointed them. And continuing... Verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 5, so Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him. Christ was appointed. He was chosen. He was chosen how? Through the scriptures. We see it. He was appointed by him who said this, you are my son today, I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he introduces this new idea that Christ is chosen as a priest after a different order than Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. (sighs) I know this sounds heavy. Um, I'm just going to point out something in verse 11. Paul says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, Since you've become dull of hearing. Like he had a lot to say about Melchizedek. And indeed, it's one of the major points in the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to wade through it with you. You're not a Hebrew, you didn't grow up in a Hebrew culture. And so a lot of this may be missed, but we're going to try to wade through together this point about Melchizedek. Now, his first foundational point about Christ as a priest is that he was appointed. He was chosen. And how was he chosen? Because the father said, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Each one of those words is important. You are a priest is important. Forever is important. After the order of Melchizedek is important. Each is hugely important in the points that Paul goes on to build. Now, he's working with the Hebrews who've grown up with an understanding of the sanctuary. We can just picture it in our mind's eye, but they saw it. They experienced it. They were much more in tune with what he has to say here. Okay, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, and then he goes on another sidetrack again, warning the Hebrews not not to go into apostasy like their parents had done. But then he comes back to the idea of Melchizedek. And this is in chapter 6 in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the veil where Christ has gone as a forerunner in our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse, uh, chapter 7, he goes in to explain about how important Melchizedek was. Abraham, who was the father of the faithful. He was the father of the Hebrews. When Abraham came back from a battle, he took all, he he gave tithe, 10% of everything he had, and he gave it to Melchizedek the priest. Wow. I mean, for him to give it to Melchizedek the priest, Melchizedek must have been a very special person. And Paul goes on to explain about his specialness. Melchizedek, it doesn't mention his parents. We don't know where he came from. from. We don't know where he died. It It seems seems as though he lived lived forever. forever. Paul picks up on that point. Also, Also, his name name is, is by translation, translation. king of righteousness. Righteousness. And it's 7 verse 2. And he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Paul is a pretty sharp Bible student. He wrestled in his mind when he was blinded after seeing Christ in the road of Emmaus. and then later he was in the wilderness by Damascus wrestling with his understanding of Scripture and who Jesus was. And he came to understand that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. If he was going to be a priest on this earth, then, then he wouldn't qualify. But he must be a priest from a different order and the only one that would be there would be the order of Melchizedek. This must be how Christ is a priest. And then he began to think about the priests that were on this earth, the Levites, the Levitical priesthood. So Aaron eventually died, his kids eventually died, their kids eventually died, and on and on and on through time. And if God wanted perfection to happen through that system, it couldn't because they died. God must be looking for a better priesthood. And he builds that point, 7 verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Evan, Aaron? And then he notes this. Get this point. For when there was a change in the priesthood, there was necessarily a change in the law itself. Now he just plants a seed. He leaves it like he did with, 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 you know, appointed. He plans to get it he leaves it. We're going to come back to this. If there's a change in the priesthood, there must also be a change in the law. Now this is huge. You guys need to get this. Have you ever met people that keep the feasts today? They say it's just like the Ten Commandments. You should keep the feasts. Okay. Um, I used to be one of those. Shh, don't tell my wife. <laughs> but, I began to study Hebrews, and I see it differently. So this seed was planted. Hmm. If there's a change in the priesthood, there's also a change in the, help me out, in the law. Change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law. He leaves it, and he goes on. And then, chapter 7, in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness uselessness. for the law made nothing perfect but on the other hand other hand we draw near to god a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to god so this is useless but it helps us to understand there's a better hope and through this better hope we can draw near to god do you understand that better hope through which you can draw near to god that's what he's trying to establish And he says, for it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So he's establishing how Jesus is so much better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Levitical priesthood system. And he has a better covenant. So what is the covenant? Well, he'll explain that as we go forward. A better covenant. And then 8, chapter 8, verse 1. He's trying to condense everything he has said into a few sentences. That's hard for Paul. He's going to squeeze like juice out of a a cabbage, and it's just going to be squeezed into a few verses. Are you ready? Now this is the sum of what we are saying. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, and not man. So he's saying Jesus is the high priest in heavenly places. And every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Hmm. This law that that God gave to Moses was a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So if we just simply walk around and we look at this whole system that God has, the curtain that's around the outside, it's a copy and a shadow of something heavenly. We come inside. Book. We come into the altar, altar of sacrifice. What is this teaching us? It's a copy of something that God designed to teach us. We come around it to the laver with the water. What's God trying to teach us? We come up to the tabernacle. We come through the door. We see these things here. Keith did a great job last week explaining these. We come to the veil. All these are copies and shadows. But this whole thing happens because of the service that happen in here the sacrifices that happen what the priests do if they were no priest there would be nothing happening in here there's no sacrifice nothing would be happening it's all built around that what's the copy and shadow of those things and then he makes he goes for the jugular right here are you ready amen we are in chapter 8 And verse 7. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So that first one, the copy and shadow, had problems. And so we're looking for another one. Now is he just going by this by his gut? You know, it kind of looks to me like that's not going to work. We should do something different. No, he goes to the highest source of authority. He goes to the scriptures themselves and he proves it. Right here. Hebrews 8. And verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Whoa. So there was the first covenant. And now, according to the scripture, Paul is declaring that is faulty. There is a change happening because we have a different priesthood. And that law must be done away. And we're coming to a new covenant. What is this new covenant? Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts I will be their God and they shall be my people The new covenant is the old in living color It's the old in living color It's the the copy the reality of the copy It's the substance of the shadow It's what the shadow was pointing towards. This is the new covenant. The old isn't sufficient. God has something better that we see. Paul's theme, something better through the book of Hebrews. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, here it comes, he makes the first one obsolete. This new covenant means that old one isn't good anymore. There's something better and that's something, if you go back to what was before, you're basically saying the new hasn't come. The new hasn't begun. You're going back to the old system. It's now, according to Paul, obsolete. This whole system of sacrifices and priests serving back and forth and the tabernacle and what they represent is gone away because we've now come to the real thing that was shining across it, creating a shadow. That's gone away. We no longer sacrifice lambs. We no longer do these services. They help us to understand the reality that God had for us. And then chapter 9, verse 1. For even the first covenant had divine services and an earthly sanctuary. The first covenant had what? Divine services. We're going to be talking about those. Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Day of Atonement. It had divine services and an earthly tabernacle, which we talked about last week. And so he goes on to explain this old covenant, the first covenant. And then verse 6 These preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the priest goes once a year. So there's the daily services and there's the yearly services. These are all a copy that helps us to understand the heavenly. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of bloods of bulls and goats and calves, but by his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Wow, that's a, that's a mouthful, Paul. But he's basically saying, in essence, the sacrifice of Christ is better than the sacrifices they had in the Old Testament. Hebrews has pointed continually towards the better way that God had for us, the reality of the sanctuary. Amen. Amen. So we're going to dig into the the sanctuary, the sacrifices just a little bit here. Laws for the sin offerings. In Leviticus chapter 4, it gives us a description about the sacrifices for sin, to make atonement for sinners. We've talked about the theory of atonement. Well, here, God explains it. This is the law of sin offerings. In Leviticus 4, there are four types of individuals. There's a priest... There's a congregation, there's a ruler, and there's a common person. There's a sacrifice for each person and it teaches us something about the reality in heaven. So the priest, he has a bull. He's to sacrifice the bull. Now when the priest brings his bull for his sacrifice, the scripture's clear. He has to lay his hand on the bull and he's to kill it. He is to kill it. Hmm. The congregation also has a bull and representatives from the congregation will lay their hands on it and sacrifice. The ruler has a male goat and he's to lay his hand on it and sacrifice it and it's to die in his place. The common person has a female goat or a lamb, one of the two, and they're to put their hand on the head and sacrifice it. So what is the lesson that we see here? There's a descending order of expense for sacrifice. The greater the person's responsibility the greater cost of the sacrifice jesus said everyone to whom much will be given of him much will be required are you a parent you're in a great position of responsibility are you a leader in some capacity you're in a great position of responsibility of whom much is given much will be required now we're told that he's to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering now what does this teach us well this teaches that the guilty individual who is supposed to die the wages of sin is death places his hands on there and the life is taken he is now free to go his burden is off he's free to go he's free to go and The sin has then passed passed to 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 the victim. The victim victim is bearing that. Now, Now, there are some who disagree with this, and so we're going to take a little bit to dig into this. this. Hebrews 9, verse 22 22 says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So let's look at what happens to the blood. This is very important. What happens to the blood of the sacrifice? It's kind of gory. Excuse me, I'm sorry, but uh, this is important. All right, so the priest and congregation... The same exact thing happens with them. Oh, and we have the ruler and common person. Same, same thing happens. These two different ones. So after the sacrifice is sacrificed for the priest or the congregation, the blood is taken into the sanctuary through the doors past the altar, the, the, the candlestick the, the and, the table table and the table there table with the bread with the and it bread, comes to the altar of incense and they take blood and, and they, they, put they put it on the, four, horn, horn, four, horns the four horns of the altar and then they and sprinkle some the blood seven times, seven times times before, before the, veil. the veil and then they come out with the rest of the blood and they pour it out of the base of the altar of sacrifice. That's for the priest and the congregation. What did they sacrifice? A bull. So the ruler and the, and the common person, um, after the sacrifice happened, they poured all the blood out at the base they didn't even go in there they stayed out here I pushed the wrong button again okay so we want to see what happened Um, okay so this is where Moses is explaining the law of sin offering so that Aaron and his sons will know how to do it correctly the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it they're going to eat the flesh of the sacrifice okay But no sin offering, oh no, here we are, but no sin offering shall be eaten, from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned with fire. So if the blood is taken into the sanctuary, what happens? It's to be burned with fire. So we have these two different categories. Okay, so we have the ruler and the common person. Uh, They have a goat or a lamb. Um, All the blood is poured out of the base, so then. It's not, doesn't go in the tabernacle. They're supposed to? They're supposed to eat the flesh. Yeah. Okay, the priest in the congregation, uh, they have a bowl. Um, It's put on the horns of the altar of incense, sprinkled seven times before the veil. So the rest is poured out of the altar of sacrifice. So it goes into the tabernacle. So what happens to the flesh? It's not eaten, right? And it's burned. Okay. Alright, so the bulls, the flesh is eaten, not eaten. If it's uh, is burned. If it's a goat or a lamb, the flesh is the flesh is eaten. Okay, you got that, you got that. Okay. So so Aaron and his sons learned this, but if they're anything like faith's husband, they forget too quickly. Oh, what did she tell me to do? Oh, I don't know. And so uh, they were trying to recall what do we do, what do we do? And so so they did something. And Moses was not happy. Now Moses, this is in Leviticus 10. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering and behold, it was burned up. It was the, what? The goat. What's supposed to happen with the goat? Hmm. The sin offering and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eliezer and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, why have you not eaten the sin offering? Um, Since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that why was it given to them to eat that 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 you may bear the iniquity of the congregation they were to eat the flesh because the the guilt had passed from the sinner to the victim and then when the priest ate the flesh the guilt then passed to him You see something happening here called the transfer Transfer of sin. sin. It transferred transferred from the the sinner sinner to the sacrificed to the the priest. priest. Transfer Transfer of sin. sin. Hmm. So So the priest was now carrying the guilt guilt of the iniquity of the the congregation of Israel. Israel. I hope you see that point. point. To make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. Why? So they could bear the iniquity of the congregation of the children of Israel. So this brings us back to this scripture, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin in the, birth, in the place of the burnt offering. This, this transfer of sin happened and when the priest came into the sanctuary, when he offered his own sacrifice, that blood of the bulls was brought in and sprinkled in the holy place. The sin sin was transferred transferred all the the way way to to the holy place. The holy place place became became polluted. polluted. It became filled with sin. sin. Do you carry a burden around? around? So weight you down. You You can bring that burden to the the Lord. This whole this thing whole teaches thing us teaches that we can bring our burden, our burden and place, and place our, our faith in the in Lamb the of God, God that, takes that takes away the away sin of the world. And, the and world, world, we can give Him our, our, burden. our burden. Praise God. It's gone. And then He takes our burden and it ends up in the sanctuary. And it piles up in there and it piles up in there with my sin and your sin, and the world's, and it becomes polluted. The sanctuary becomes sanctuary. polluted. And we'll, we'll study about that on the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary. Our sins are removed from us, praise God. It no longer is weighing me down. I'm free in Jesus. Hallelujah. The Scripture clearly teaches this point in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that has led to the slaughter. Like a lamb that has led to the slaughter. This is sanctuary terminology. For, ah, uh, I did it Again. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that we might become the righteousness of God. The sanctuary is powerful. Our sins are transferred off of us. Praise the Lord. This is good news. My friend Brian. went into his room, and shut the door. (laughs) Click. He was done. He was discouraged. His life had come to a point where it was unbearable. He was ashamed. He couldn't even look his parents in the face. And then I got a call. Chris, I know you have a construction business. Jonathan has just moved back up here. He's turned his life around. Could you hire him? He doesn't have a car. He had to use that to pay off some of his checks. Um, You have to come pick him up. Like Jonathan, I mean, excuse me, Brian, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah, absolutely, I'll come pick Brian up. So I picked him up and we were driving together to work and he told me his story. The Marines, the choices he had made, the addictions that took over his life. Like, wow, a lot of people face addictions. Like, how, how have you made a new difference in your life? Like, what has been the secret for you, Brian? Like, what has given you power over that? And what he has said has stuck with me. I use that myself, the very exact thing. He says, Chris, when I was in my room, I was overwhelmed with this desire for drugs. You cannot understand. It's true, I couldn't. You cannot understand the desire I had, but I could not satisfy it. And I knew that I could not control myself. And so I went into my room to pray to one who could. And he said, in my mind, I cried out, Jesus, save me. I can't save myself. Jesus, save me. I can't save myself. Jesus, save me. I can't save myself. And he said, when I stopped praying, I began to think about my addiction. And so I prayed, Jesus, save me. I can't save myself. Is it true he could save himself? Yes or no? There is no way. You know many people have reached that point and they ended it right there. He could not save himself. But he turned to the high priest who could the one on whom he could place his burden, who gave him freedom over the sin in his life. The sanctuary teaches about a Jesus who gives us power in our life over the sin that afflicts us. He redeems us from its penalty and its power. Jesus, save me, I can't save myself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have, since confidence, we have confidence to enter, to enter the holy, holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the veil that is through His flesh. And since we have did you catch that word? And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you want that experience? The scripture tells us to, tells us to draw, near. draw near. Let us come, Let us come to that, to that Savior. Savior. He is living. He is, living. He is, real. He is real. I believe, that God, is I believe real. that God is real. It's not just an idea, someone to, to mentally hang our, no, he's real. And he helped my friend with a real problem. He's able to help Do you believe that? Amen. The book of Hebrews, the sanctuary, the atonement. It's not just a theory. It's something we can experience. I would imagine there's someone here today that has a burden. burden. You have something that's that's been weighing weighing on your back, back. on your mind, on your your heart heart, for a a long time. I'm going to ask everyone just bow your head, please. Just bow your head. If you would like to come forward up here with me, because I need his help as well, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Come to the Savior. the Savior. I'm not the Savior, not Jesus is the Savior, Jesus. Jesus. but we're in, his house. we're in his house. And say, Lord, today is, to the day. Day is the day. I went in the I door, in the door and, the doors, and it clicked and it behind me. I can't can't help help myself, myself. but Jesus Jesus can. If you want to bring that that burden to Jesus, Jesus, I invite you to come up. The scripture tells us that that he he ever lives lives. to make intercession. The Levitical Levitical priests died. But Jesus Jesus has the power power of an indestructible life. life. If you have a burden you want to give to Jesus, Jesus. I invite you to come up here. Father in heaven, we we have explored explored the better way way that you have for us. us. As we reflect reflect on this this world, world, It's bitterly disappointing. disappointing. Lord, help us to have faith, faith, living faith, in our high priest priest, who's who's entered into heaven that he might help help us 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 in time of need. need. Lord, you've seen those who have come forward forward? because they have a burden. They want to lay at the foot of the cross. By faith, they put their hands on the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. You have promised, promised if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to to cleanse us us. from all unrighteousness. Lord, make us clean. clean. Make us whole. whole. Make Make us new. new. We pray in Jesus' Jesus' name. name. Amen.